0: In our study of the revelation we've come to the fourth of seven minor divisions the fourth of the seven visions and today we also arrive at the second major division of the book which divides the book between visions 1 and or 1 to 3 and 4 to 7 Remember that the first 11 chapters focus specifically on the issues that were laying at the doorstep of the churches there in Asia Minor, in John's day, and at that lie at the doorstep of the church in every age. The, the issues were what, where they were spiritually and practically, what they ought to be doing in the world, and what they should expect to be happening in the world as they carry out their task. Uh, the, the language that I used early on was that of a drone that began sort of at about a six, six feet uh, off the ground level, just looking right at head and shoulders level with the church. And then we would kind of zoom up into the heavens and see what's happening there. And then we'd look back down on the earth and see how that affects the churches there. But everything was dealing very specifically with that, uh, as I said, the, the image or the, the issues that were lying right there at their doorstep that they were dealing with. Every day, And the theme throughout that section is very simple. I've said it many times. Hold up, hold fast, and hold out. That's the message of Christ to His churches. Hold up the light of the gospel. Hold fast through tribulation, through affliction, through the suffering. Hold out until, until the end. And in so doing, you win the victory. That's how the church wins. As the church bears up the light of the gospel... We expect that opposition is going to increase. As opposition increases, temporal judgments will come upon men, which make the present age a tumultuous one. But all the while, the gospel is advancing. The kingdom is growing, and men are growing increasingly more wicked. These these two parallel lines are happening all the time. In all of this, we've seen... Numerous times that Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church, walks in the midst of His churches, in the person of His Holy Spirit, through all of this, protecting His churches, providing for His churches, comforting His churches, at the same time, personally, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so everything that comes upon the world and the church is being mediated through him. Nothing comes upon the world or the church, the, the image that I used was, unless it first passes across his desk. He is the mediator, making sure all things are unfolding exactly according to his plan for the good of his church. The book, in other words, has shown us Christ. It's teaching us about the Lord Jesus. His power, His authority, His direct influence, His care and concern of His bride, His conquest of all things, what He's doing in the world right now. That's the purpose of the book. But it's also shown us opposition. But that opposition is still keeping Christ fixated in the center. It's opposition to what? To Him. Opposition against Him. Opposition against His church. It's all revealing, us, revealing to us something about Christ. And that brings us to then the second major division, chapters 12 to 22, where we see that underlying reality opened up even more specifically. This final portion of the book zooms out to show us the cosmic battle that lies beneath that temporal enmity that every church is going to experience in every age. It's almost as if we, in that drone image, it's almost as if we zoomed way out and then came out to the side and we're able to see a cross section and at the top we see all the things that are coming upon the church but beneath that we see that there's actually a bigger war happening that this enmity against the church is the fruit of. Consider a passage of Scripture from John 15. Jesus said in John 15 verses 18 to 21, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Any system of theology that avoids that statement, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Any system of theology that, that, that gives us a point in history where that's not true is false. If you're a Christian, if you're a servant of Christ, you're not going to get anything better than what he got. Servant is not better than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. What's he saying there? He's saying the world's going to hate you. But before they hate you, it's because they hate me. The world hates Christ. The enmity that comes toward the church is because of the enmity against Christ or toward Christ. Why is there this active animosity and hatred? It's, it's one thing to simply rebel. God has said this and people say, well, I'm just not going to do that. That's one thing. It's another thing to ignore it. God has said this, I'm just going to ignore it and, and be, remain apathetic. That's another thing. But it's a, a, completely th- a completely different thing to actively war against Christ and go against His people. That's what's happening in the world. That's what we've seen in the first 11 chapters. It's not just uh, rebellion. It's not just ignoring. There's actually opposition coming against the saints. And we saw that specifically in, in chapters 2 and 3. Why is there this active animosity? Why... Is there something in men that won't allow them to simply remain apathetic? They can't just ignore it. They have to come against Christ and His church. Well, we could say, well, people are wicked. And that is, there is an aspect that, that that is true, but it's not merely in man's inherent wickedness. It's also found in the role of Satan in all of this. Notice several of the ways that Satan is described in the New Testament. John 12, 31, he's called the ruler of this world. John 14 and verse 30, the ruler of this world. John 16, verse 11, the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in, listen to this language, the son's. Of disobedience. Satan is a ruler and a prince and he is at work in men. in that passage, the unregenerate by nature are dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. what is that? Following the prince of the power of the air. They're following Satan. First John 5:19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one or literally the whole world lies in the wicked. Now as we said last week, none of that negates or somehow hinders the sovereign reign of God. But the fact remains that the reason the world hates Christians is because it hates our Christ. And it hates our Christ because it's under the power and the influence of Satan who has hated Christ a lot longer than the world has. What is lying beneath all of the affliction and opposition that comes upon the church? The history-long enmity between Satan and the Son of God. And so that's what we see moving forward. The cosmic war that lies behind the things that we see in front of our faces every day. Chapter 12 sets the stage for us very vividly at multiple levels. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 today and... In this passage, there are several characters, and they are playing a part in a drama, an unfolding drama. And so, as we open up the passage, I just want to identify the players, identify the the people here, and then I think we'll be able to see what the drama is that it's describing. So, first, we have this woman in verses 1 and 2. And we need to ask, Who is the woman? Well, the text never gives us her name. So we have to go beyond just what's her name. We have to go beyond that to try to discern her identity from the description that is given. So the first thing we see about this woman is that she is gloriously adorned. Verse 1, "...a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars." Notice that everything that follows is, uh, is coming in the form of a great sign in heaven. The same word that was used in chapter 1 and verse 1. A picture, something visibly observable that's meant to convey a deeper theological message. Now knowing that, we can automatically release a little bit of the pressure of demanding that this woman have... A name, first name, last name, date of birth, date of death, whatever, an address. In other words, we're relieved of a little bit of the pressure of identifying this as a single individual, although she might be a single individual. She may be, but she doesn't have to be. It's a sign. It's a picture. And this is a sign in heaven. In other words, this is a sign from a heavenly vantage point. So we're not necessarily under the restraint of being able to observe this with the physical eyes. This is a spiritual vision that John has received. We have this woman clothed with the sun. She has as her covering the sun. Now if you've got a Bible with with cross-references at the bottom or in the center column, you'll see that the cross-reference, the first one that's given, takes you to Psalm 104 and verse 2. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment. Now we could go to other places, but the idea here that I want you to see is that this... Uh, Being clothed with the sun is typically a description of God, uh, describing God Himself. We know God dwells in unapproachable light. Psalm 93.1 says that God is robed in majesty. Job 40 verse 10 says that He's clothed with glory and splendor, bright, shining, effulgence. That's God. But this is not God. This is a woman. So do we ever see this kind of language Describing anybody else, especially a woman. Well, again, the the cross reference there takes us to Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 10. Who is this? This is the bridegroom speaking of his bride. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Now there again, we immediately have this connection to the moon, which is also in our text describing the beauty of this woman who is so gloriously adorned. She has the moon under her feet. In other words, she's above the moon, more glorious than even the heavenly bodies themselves. The moon and the sun are meant to adorn her, which means this woman is actually more glorious. She's greater than the sun and the moon. As much greater, men, as your wife is than an outfit she might wear that adorns her, that accentuates her beauty. You wouldn't say, I love that outfit, and now my affection is drawn to the outfit. All that does is accentuate what was already beautiful about her. It's the same thing that's happening here. She's gloriously adorned, but these are just her adornments. She herself is greater than even the sun and the moon. She has a crown of 12 stars. And the word for crown there we've seen before. It's not a, a, a golden crown. It's a victor's wreath. Like they would be, would be placed on their heads if they won a competition. So she appears to have won some sort of victory. And the crown is a crown of 12 stars. Heavenly bodies, again, adorning her. The number 12 we, we know points us to the people of God in some way. In the Old Covenant, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Covenant, you have the 12 apostles, the the foundation stones of the New Testament church. And so, we just have this reference to 12, the the people of God. This woman is adorned with a glorious adornment that is ascribed elsewhere to God Himself. In the Song of Solomon, this language is used to describe a bride... The victor's wreath around her head points us to the fact that she has won a victory and she represents in some way the people of God. She is gloriously adorned. Notice secondly that this woman is in the agony of expectancy. Verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. She's clearly in the distresses of childbirth enduring the intense discomfort associated with bringing forth offspring. Even in our present day after the invention of the the epidural procedure, mothers who have given birth to children know that there is a pain that is special in kind and special in intensity that is only associated with bringing a child into the world. When this is happening, somebody's having a baby. These physical strains that come upon a mother's body are directly related to what that woman's body is doing for 40 weeks to prepare to bring a child into the world and then nurture that child's life after it comes into the world. So John sees this woman and she's suffering and he recognizes That this kind of suffering is that special kind of suffering. The suffering that only comes with bringing forth a child. She's pregnant, crying out, in the agony of giving birth. In verse 5, we notice that she is going to give birth to a male child. She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Now the goal, again, is to identify these characters. Here we come to a sub-point of identifying the woman, but we're also now going to be able to identify another one of the three characters. So we need to ask, who is this child? It's a male child. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He was caught up to God, and he was caught up to his throne, the throne of the child. Now I don't think that I should have to labor very long or defend very much my assertion that this child is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ is a male. He was born as an infant, a human baby boy, to His mother. Jesus Christ is the King that has been set on Zion's hill as ruler of all of the nations, Psalm 2. Jesus Christ, after His death and resurrection, was called up to God, taken up in a cloud... Jesus Christ, having thus ascended, is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling the nations. Now notice there, in one verse we have covered the entire ministry of Christ through to His present status as mediatorial king. In other words, we we see a very big and important picture collapse down into a very brief statement. Keep that in mind. The big picture is described very rapidly. Now let's go back to the identity of the woman. We see that she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fruit of her labors and pains. All that came upon her was directly related to preparing her to bring forth the Son of God into the world. And so we say, well, this must be the Virgin Mary. Right? She was His mother. Well, we'll see more to come. What comes after that and and even what comes before does not fit the description of Mary. Remember, we're not limited to assuming that this will have to be an actual female literally giving birth. We are allowed, and I would say we ought to expect to see some figurative language being used here knowing that this has been identified as a sign in heaven. She's going to give birth to a son. The son is Christ himself. Let's continue. Next we notice her ongoing nourishment in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. 42 months, a time period we've already seen before. The same time period that the church in chapter 11 verse 2 will suffer and in chapter 11 verse 3 will be witnesses of Christ into all the earth. So this woman's wilderness time where she's nourished by God is the exact same length of time that we've already referred to as the church age. The time of the church's preaching and suffering in the world. But there is this ongoing nourishment. God nourishes her And then jumping ahead a little ways, we also see that she has more offspring. Look at verse 17. I didn't read this, but look at verse 17 of chapter 12. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So she has more offspring. These offspring are those who Keep the commandments of God. They are obedient, upright people. And they hold to the testimony of Jesus in the revelation. That is, they are faithful Christian people. This woman is also the mother, then, of the siblings of Christ. The faithful Christian church comes from her womb after the ascension of Christ. Who is this woman? Well without jumping too far ahead. We know verse 3 identifies the dragon, who in verse 10 is called the accuser of the brethren. In verses 9 and 12, he is called very explicitly the devil. Still trying to identify the woman. We have a woman who's going to bring the Messiah into the world, She's mentioned here very closely in relationship with the dragon, that is the devil. Here in this chapter and in Revelation chapter 20, he's also referred to as that ancient serpent. Now I'm not going to make all of the the parallels between chapter 12 and chapter 20. They are parallels. But we ought to ask, because it's still sort of fuzzy. Who's this woman? Is there any other place or are there any other places in the Bible that bring into a single scene... Like this, Satan, the ancient serpent, a woman, and the notion of bringing forth a male child into the world who will rule the nations. Hopefully you're saying, Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3, Genesis 3. Because that's that's a text that is clearly in the shadows of what's happening here. Genesis 3.15, we often refer to it as the first proclamation of the gospel. Now last week I said that the full consummated gospel is the restoration of of eventually what was lost. It's the abolition of all enmity, the restoring of communion between God and man. Where did I get that? Well, I go back to Eden to see what was lost in the garden. It was in the garden that paradise was lost. It was in the garden where the promise of restoration was given. And what was the substance of that promise? The very first gospel sermon Preached to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise that begins all promises. This is the promise which literally spews forth the rest of the Bible. The whole history of the human race and of the scriptures is the unfolding of that single promise. And it's amazing how you read it. And most orthodox will affirm that. They will affirm those statements. This is the first gospel sermon. And yet there are so many places in the scriptures they can't point to and say, here's how that fits into that promise. that They can't make a substantial relationship between these things. When we say the Bible is Christ-centered, this is what we mean. We mean it's the revelation of God, specifically in His work of redemption, specifically in the work of His Son, who is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. If you can't get to Christ from your interpretation, you've not finished your work. And if you get to Christ and then go past Him to some future blessing for Israel, well, you've gone too far. Come back. There's, there's, There's a promise here that's made. Now, Genesis 3.15, let's think about this promise. God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You, Satan, and the woman. Now, in the context, we would say, probably talking about the woman who is standing there, Eve. And I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. So the serpent is going to have offspring, and the woman's going to have offspring... He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and Satan, you will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. Now when we bring these two pictures together, lay this beside Revelation chapter 12, who is the offspring who's going to crush the serpent's head? Jesus Christ. Same child as in Revelation 12. Who's the serpent? The dragon of Revelation 12. We're still on point number one. (coughs) Who is the woman? That's the question. Now, initially we would say Eve is the woman. And in Genesis 3, I think we would be partially correct. But we have to also understand this idea of seed of the woman laid beside the idea of seed of the serpent. Did did the devil have babies? Did he have physical offspring? No. The idea here there is, is of spiritual descendants, A lineage that is defined not simply through biology, although that is related to it, but it's defined more through one's devotion to one of those two kingdoms we saw last week. The kingdom of man, or the kingdom of the devil, or the kingdom of God. Consider another passage, 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. The reason the Son of God, the male child, the offspring of the woman, the reason that He appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Notice the language. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in Him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. See the language of offspring. Except it's not biological, it's spiritual. This is how we know. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's going to come back. Does not love his brother. So we have in that text, God's seed versus the devil's seed. Children of God laid aside the children of the devil. And again, the idea there is a spiritual lineage. It's not merely biological. It doesn't ignore biology, but it's not just biological. This reality is played out for us in Genesis chapter 4. a clear distinction is made between the godly line of Abel and the ungodly line of Cain. Cain killed Abel and was banished. He was cursed. It was after that that the godly line was continued through Seth. But notice how John makes the application in 1 John three twelve. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's Righteous. See, that was the application of the promise, the the very first uh, unfolding of that promise. In In the first gospel sermon, not only was there a promise of the Messiah to come, a male child who would destroy the works of the devil, but also a promise of two lines of offspring that began at that point. The godly line and the ungodly line, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the sons of God and the sons of the devil, Satan. Now the godly line of the woman finds its climax in Christ himself. What we see in the passage here, that it doesn't stop. She begins to produce more offspring, siblings of the Messiah who obey the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Christ. Still under point number one, who is the woman? She's not a single individual female. Here's how I would define it. She's the personification of a spiritual lineage whose covenantal blessings require a physical lineage. I should put an ED there. Required a physical lineage. A spiritual lineage whose covenantal blessings required a physical lineage. Now let me unpack that. The woman is a personification of a spiritual lineage, the godly, salvific, spiritual line, a continual transmission of the knowledge and worship of the one true God and faith in the Messiah down through the ages, reaching its pinnacle in the man Christ Jesus and continuing after Him in all of His spiritual siblings. It's a personification because she's described as a woman. She has clothes on. She's got a wreath. She's giving birth. She's she's described using the traits of a human being. She's described as a woman because there is inherent here the notion of progeny and offspring and an ongoing line of, of transmission. Personification of a spiritual lineage whose covenantal blessings, this spiritual lineage has been given covenantal blessings or promises. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the covenant of grace. All who partake in salvation from Adam and Eve through Seth onward, they're all members of the covenant of grace because that's the only covenant which has salvific blessings. Salvific blessings which are found in the person promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's covenantal blessings given to this spiritual lineage. But those covenantal blessings required a physical line because the Lord Jesus Christ was promised to be the seed of a woman. He was to take the nature of a man. He was born of a virgin, born a little baby boy. The promise required an actual human lineage. A biological line traceable from Adam to Christ, which Matthew shows us and Luke shows us. This biological line is traced through the family of Jacob, which we call Israel. But it did not start there, nor was it exclusive to that. There are Multiple non-Israelites were a part of this line. God made a promise of spiritual and salvific nature, which would come through a biological line because it was epitomized or or, or found its substance in a human being now were all of that physical line were they all godly or were they all part of the spiritual line no while the spiritual promise of the Messiah required the physical line throughout the history of the physical line it was only the spiritual line uh, the, the promise of the Messiah that kept up that physical line because very often the physical line was ungodly The unfaithfulness of men did not nullify the faithfulness of God. This is the reason that we have Seth and Enoch and Noah and Abram and Isaac and Jacob. This is the reason for the nation of Israel. We know that they broke covenant with God before Moses even got down off Mount Sinai. But God continued His faithfulness to that rebellious nation. Why? Because He had already made a spiritual promise to Abraham and to Adam and to Noah To use Paul's language, the root held them up. Israel as a nation never had any spiritual promises made to her outside of being the biological vehicle through which Abraham's seed would be born. Now I've seen again this week, again, this accusation of replacement theology. Oh, you believe that the church has replaced Israel. Number one, I've never met anybody who believes that, ever. Secondly, ethnic Israel would have to have had some spiritual place in God's heart for the church to replace if there was to to justify that accusation. The church has not replaced Israel because Israel never had the place with God that the church now holds, which is the same position that the church has always held in God's eyes since the garden. So this lineage while being spiritual, required a physical line. That's why we have such a prominent focus on the line of Israel in the Old Testament. We've got to get to the seed. We're waiting on a baby. The woman, then, is a spiritual lineage whose covenantal blessings required a physical lineage. It was the line of the faithful. The godly from the beginning of the world to Christ and then even down to today, we still see this line continuing. Now, why then you hear all that and you say, why don't you just say the church? The woman is the church. The Heidelberg Catechism question number 54 asks, What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic church? Little c, Catholic. Answer, I believe that the Son of God through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. Now that community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith from the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, we call the church. So why would I not just say the woman is the church? Well, let me, I think there's more to it than just that. While I do believe that this woman is correctly labeled the church, when we talk about the church, we are usually speaking specifically of the redeemed of God, even though, even in a meeting like this of the visible church, we recognize there may be unregenerate men who are not a part of that spiritual line, even though they're, they're here with the, the visible, what's called the visible, church. Well, why would I not just say the, the woman is? Israel. Well, Israel as a nation is too broad. Not all Israelites have a clear biological connection to the Messiah in a in a a linear trajectory. At the same time, Israel as a nation is too narrow, because this spiritual lineage preceded Jacob and even Abraham, who was not an Israelite. Why would I not just say the invisible church then? because the requirement of the physical lineage in this text is too significant to ignore. Too significant to ignore. Now, why do I say that? Let's go to point number two. Who's the dragon? We've already said the dragon is the devil. We won't spend much time here. Verses 3 to 4a. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Seven heads points us to His, what we might consider wisdom, although with the serpent, we wouldn't call it wisdom. I think craftiness, cunning would be a better word, more crafty than all of the beasts of the field. Ten horns point us to His great power. Seven diadems, this is the word for crowns, point us to His authority and His rule. So we've seen He is considered, called the ruler of this world. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. This is taken from Daniel chapter 8. Now, usually this passage is the one that's used to defend the idea that the devil fell and with him a third of the heavenly angels fell with him. Now, whether or not that is true, if we, if we look at the parallel statement of this in verse 9, the time frame doesn't fit the fall of Satan at the beginning of time. When we go back to Daniel. In Daniel, it doesn't reference angels either. The explanation is meant to point us at the dragon. So I don't think we have to get terribly bogged down in, is this stars, is this angels, is this Jews, is this... The point is that this devil, this dragon, is a large and powerful enemy. He is cunning. He does have authority in his particular sphere under God, the God of this age, the ruler of the world... And all of his activity is deadly and destructive. In other words, he leaves decimation in his wake. When he goes down, he brings stuff with him. The dragon is the devil, the ancient serpent, Satan himself. Number three, we've already identified the the male child. The third point is the relationship between these three. In this scene, what is the relationship between the dragon, the woman and the male child. What brings them together? Verse 4b through verse 5. The dragon stood before in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. Here's the relationship. The dragon, Satan, ruler of this world, God of the age, prince of the power of the air, standing before the woman, standing before the spiritual lineage of the Messiah whose covenantal blessings required a physical line John first described her. She was in the pains of labor. She's about to give birth. She's in eager expectation of the coming Messiah. He's there waiting so that when she bore her child, who is the Christ who's coming into the world, the centerpiece of this spiritual lineage, so that when he comes into the world, the evil one, the devil, might devour this child. That's his goal. Destroy the male child. Remember back in verse 5, I said... The entire ministry of Christ up to his ascension was summarized in basically three statements. She gave birth to a male child. The child was caught up to God, to his throne. That's the entire ministry of Christ. This scene here is, is capable of collapsing a lot of time into a little space. The same thing is still happening. Or is happening there in verses 4 through 6. The phrase, the woman who was about to give birth, describes the entire history of the godly spiritual lineage from the moment of Genesis 3.15 until the moment Christ entered the world, even in and through His earthly ministry. This is the entire history of redemption. Everything in the Bible from Genesis 3.15 onward is woman about to give birth. Because the devil was the very one to whom the first gospel sermon was preached, he was well aware that from a spiritual lineage, one would come who would crush his head. And so from that point onward, he sits and he's waiting for every opportune time to devour this male child, to destroy this spiritual line. Now here's where we return to the point of why we can't just ignore the biological aspect of it. Because... The devil is not able to accomplish anything of any real lasting effect on the spiritual nature of the godly line. He has no power over regenerate souls. He can't stop that work. He can't take us out of God's hand. But what can he do? He can attack the physical line. Since the covenant blessings will come through physical offspring, the physical line is necessary. There must be a physical line. So the devil knows, if I cut off the physical line, I can stop that skull-crushing baby from coming into the world. Here's the relationship between these characters. It's the underlying enmity between everything that has spawned, all other animosity in the world between the godly and the ungodly. The devil wants to destroy the spiritual line. He hates Christ. Fourthly then, we see the unfolding drama of history in that same text. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Here we have all of redemptive history collapsed. Except we need to understand this. Here it's being described specifically with the goal of illustrating the enmity between Satan and Christ. In other words, there is a, an angle here that is, is meant to be revealed specifically. Everything we read from Genesis 3.15 onward, we can read from one of two angles. And very often we need to consider what the author is trying to convey when we pick which angle we're looking at, even though we can still discern some other truths. From a positive side, beginning at Genesis 3.15 onward, from the positive angle, we see what God is doing through providence, to maintain the continuity of that spiritual lineage specifically through a physical line in order to bring the messiah into the world this is the reason why there's so much attention to national israel and bloodlines and who came from who and who begat who all of the drama of their history is labor pains eager expectancy that's positive but then there's the negative side, which is the point of our passage, Revelation 12. It's the negative angle. From Genesis 3.15 onward, we're seeing what Satan is doing to try to stop that from happening. Namely, by destroying the physical seed or causing some great fracture between the physical line and the spiritual line so that the one fails to, con- to carry the other. Now, Satan didn't know when Christ was going to come. I don't believe. He's not omniscient. What he does know is all of the promises that God made to men. He hears when God comes and makes covenant promises about the coming of the Messiah. Satan was there when Eve heard, You will be the mother of all living. One's going to come from your womb who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The devil knew that. And so Cain, the firstborn, we see that in Genesis 4 again, kills Abel. The godly line is separated from the physical. The devil says, There, I did it. That was easy. But then Seth is born, and the godly line is taken up again. We get to Genesis chapter six. We see Seth, the line of the godly, the, the godly line, the sons of God intermarrying, inter- intermingling with the ungodly, the sons of men, and another attempt to spoil the spiritual lineage by physical contamination. People go go haywire on that text yeah. because they don't understand the Bible. Covenant promises are made to men like Noah and Shem and Japheth and Abram and Isaac and Jacob. Satan knows all of this, and so he responds accordingly. You watch where the attacks are. The attacks of Satan follow the covenantal line, they follow that, everything that God's doing. Pharaoh takes Abram's wife. Why do we care what happened to Abram's wife? Sarai offers Hagar, and Ishmael is born. Lot chooses Sodom. Why do we care? Why were the angels so intent on getting Lot and his two vile daughters out? Because one of them would be the mother of the Moabites, from which Ruth would come, the great grandmother of King David. The children of Israel are, are taken into Egypt and are afflicted. All of the male children are cut off, except Moses. Moses is preserved. Now, Moses was not in the line of, of uh, the direct line of Judah, he was a Levite. But there, that he's used, the godly line is used to preserve the physical. Moses comes back to get them all out. Yeah. At the creation of the nation of Israel, at Mount Sinai. That's their, their national constitution uh, as a nation. What, what is it? It's the law that's handed to them. And what was the goal of that law? Or we could ask it in these terms. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, the, the, Paul's answering this question Why would God come in 430 years after he already made a promise to Abraham and give this law and constitute this nation? Because these people are sinners. And if something doesn't come in from the outside to, in some way, curb their wickedness, they will run off into apostasy. The law was given to preserve that physical line. That's why there's so much attention on on purity, uh, physical purity and ethnic purity. It's all in order to maintain the physical lineage which act as sort of a, a, a bubble around the spiritual line. How long is that to be in place, Paul? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Until the child was born, the physical offspring, who was the fulfillment of the spiritual promises to a spiritual people. The offspring promised to Abram and to Adam and Eve. But the dragon always stood ready to devour the child any way he could. He's waiting. We see idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai. We see Balak summoning Balaam. Curse all these people. The daughters of Moab enticed the Israelites into idolatry at Peor. Let's just mix up this physical line and get it contaminated. In Isaiah chapter 7, Syria and Israel are going to come and attack Judah. God gives a word to comfort King Ahaz, basically saying, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. What is the word? How can I comfort this man to let him know these two nations can't hurt you? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And he shall call his name Emmanuel. Nothing can happen to you. There's still... A child to be born. Second Chronicles 22: Athaliah attempts to destroy all of the house of Judah, and she misses or she gets all but one. Yep. Now this clearly culminates in Herod's attempt to kill all of the baby boys after Christ's birth, Satan's temptation of Christ at the beginning of his ministry. Now that he's here, if I can just get him off course somehow, he used wicked men to conspire against the Lord Jesus to take his physical life. The irony is. That in His physical death, He accomplished the promise of Genesis 3.15. So throughout the historical narrative of the Bible, that's what we're seeing. You can see it from one of two angles. Either God working to bring the Messiah, or the enemy working to stop that plan from being fulfilled. And again, the reality is that it was God's faithfulness to the spiritual lineage and the covenant promises that He had made to them, which upheld and maintained the physical Line. If you think about it, there is no reason why the nation of Israel should have not been cut off at Sinai. Except God had already made a promise to Abram, to Noah, to Adam. We come to the New Testament, the promise is fulfilled. Revelation 12:5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Christ was born. The one who is to rule all of the nations. Yahweh sent His king on Zion's hill. Did Satan then devour Him? No. He was caught up to God and to His throne. He lived in the place of sinners. Died as a vicarious substitute for sinners. Was raised from the dead. Ascended into the heavens to His throne. The throne that was His. Is that the end of the enmity then? The seed is here. We should be finished, right? No. Remember this letter was written to saints who were living. They could see the enmity. They look out their front door. Enmity, still there. Just like we do in our day. The woman, it says in verse 6, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The physical aspect of the promise being fulfilled, the woman after the coming of Christ into the world, is the spiritual lineage coming from the Messiah. No bloodlines, no ethnic priorities. When I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. We're bringing everybody, people from every nation, into this line. And so we can, I think, say at this point in history, the woman is the church without much explanation. But the same thing is true today that was true back then. Is that there are many who gather with the true church who are merely here by physical association, I come with my husband, I come with my wife, I come with my parents. You gather, you have a physical association, but you're not truly converted. Just like it was in the days of the nation of Israel. She has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The entirety of the church age is the age in which the church is protected, but not just kept safe, nourished, fed, strengthened, beautified, made strong. Now the picture here, just like in chapter 11, is taken from the ministry of Elijah. For three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months, there was a famine in the land. And at the beginning of that story, you see Elijah sent off to a specific place to be nourished and protected by God. He's fed by the ravens and watered by the brook. Elijah, the messenger of God, protected in the wilderness. It's a picture the same is true for the church at the present time. The dragon still hates Christ. Christ having ascended, the dragon then wars against the people of Christ. But we don't have to be afraid. God has already promised He will protect and nourish His church until the end. See, this is comforting because we might say, well, if the Christ has come, I mean, what's the point in keeping us? Why? At one point, there was a reason to maintain that spiritual lineage. But the Christ has come. The, the, the offspring, the physical offspring is here What's to stop God from just finishing? He's made promises. He's going to continue the spiritual line to nourish the bride. How can we be sure of that? Because He's been doing it from the beginning of time. So there's enmity. People hate Christ. There is an underlying enmity. Satan hating Christ. And we have that promise of protection until Christ returns. Four things of doctrinal application that we see here first the Bible is a book about Christ either from the perspective of what God is doing positively or even from the perspective of what the enemy is doing negatively it all has a center point it's just like you know uh, BC and AD you know you change the names of it there's still a reason why you're dividing at a certain point it still centers around him it's the same with the scriptures you can look at it from either direction it's still pointing to him the history of humanity is the history of redemption. And redemption is found in a person whose name is Jesus. Use that to help you read the Scriptures. There are a lot of places that are difficult to read. If you don't know this, you, they make no sense. Use this to help you. You get Christ right, and you'll get the Bible right. Number two, the church is a glorious entity in God's eyes greater than the sun and the moon and the stars which are used to adorn her. Why is that? Because we have been adorned with the very adornment that is ascribed to God. The righteousness of Christ Himself has been imputed to the faithful. Christ gives us a heavenly splendor that the world can't see. They look at what we're doing and they don't see any beauty about it. But from a heavenly perspective, God says she's more glorious than the sun, more glorious than the moon, more glorious than the stars. We should count it a privilege, the privilege of privileges, to count ourselves amongst the people of God. The church is a glorious entity. Thirdly, the enmity has not ended. It's not over. Though Satan has been formally Defeated, He's not yet destroyed. And we'll see at the end of the chapter, He still wages war against the saints. He's not been successful up until this point. He will not be successful. But what this means is, like the parable that Christ gave, throughout the present age, there will be tares growing among the wheat There will be these two kingdoms and the tension between living in a fallen world and being citizens of the kingdom of Christ. That's going to continue. There will be suffering. There will be persecution. He's not going to give up. If anything, He's he's ravaging more than ever. The enmity has not ended. But fourthly, Christ Jesus has been caught up to God and to His throne. In other words, we serve a risen and ruling King, we serve a king who promises to nourish his bride, he promises to protect her and to feed her everything she needs to bring her to himself. Now, perhaps you're here, and I described you earlier. I said you've come into physical association with the church, the visible gathering, but you're not part of the spiritual lineage, you've never actually been born again, born of God. You're not, you don't have the seed of God abiding in you. If that's true of you, though you find you yourself here, and this is a, a great time, I think even lost people who profess to be Christians even come into the assembly of the saints and recognize the beauty and the glory and the joy that we have when we gather. But if, if you're not a part of the spiritual lineage, if, you're, if you've never been born again, then where you sit, your sin debt still hangs against you. It's joyful. To be around God's people. And yet, the wrath of God abides on you. It's hanging over your head. You're under condemnation. Now think about all of that history that I just covered. From the beginning of time, God has worked against the warring powers of hell itself to bring Christ into the world. If God has worked so intently... And so providentially, so minutely in all of these facets to bring His Son into the world to save sinners, do you not think that He means to save somebody? He means to save sinners. Of course He means to save sinners. It's why He came. He came to take that sin debt, wrap Himself in it, and then let men nail it to a cross. To put that sin debt away. To carry it outside of the city, away from His people. All of history is God's history. All of history is pregnant with Christ. All of history is meant to placard all of Christ before the eyes of all men so that all who come to Him by faith will be saved. It is not enough to have a physical association. It's not enough to have Christian parents. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to make a profession. It's not enough to make moral changes, to be a better person, to try harder. None of that is enough. If you do not have the seed of God abiding in you, if you're not a new creature, the wrath of God hangs over your head. You're a son of the devil. But I have it on good authority that today is the day of salvation. So as the men pray, if you're not a Christian, you say, that's not me, I'm not a Christian. As the men are praying, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He's never cast out one.